All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 10 is where we're going to be headed this morning as we continue our journey through Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth. As you guys make your way that direction, let me remind you that Paul is writing a letter, a very personal letter to people that he knew uh, very personally. That for 18 months he spent there in Corinth uh, planting the church, uh, raising up leaders, investing in them. And so as he left from there and then he got word of all the issues that had happened in Corinth, no doubt that affected him personally. And so Paul, uh, taking it upon himself, he wrote then uh, this letter of 1 Corinthians, which addressed all the issues that were happening inside the church in Corinth. And for 11 chapters, it's basically an open rebuke of things that they were doing uh, incorrectly. And, and so all that to say that as they received the letter, there were some that did turn, and yet there were others that flatly refused. They, in fact, questioned everything about Paul, his authority, his ministry. They questioned whether or not he was truly even a man of God. And so as Paul received word of that, he then turned around and wrote 2 Corinthians to them in what is likely his most personal of all the letters he writes to the churches. But as he's writing to them, what he's really addressing in them are spiritual issues. You see, because in the first letter he talked about uh, these immoralities that they had sexually, he talked about the infighting that was happening, he talked about drunkenness and greed, but all this is really symptoms of a spiritual problem, that they had a spiritual issue and it manifested itself in all these other ways. So too it is true often in our lives. We have these physical manifestations, but there really is a larger spiritual issue. And what is at the core of this issue is uh, for each of us, that are descendants of Adam, we have an I problem. Not an E-Y-E, but a capital I problem. I am the issue. It, it, is, it is me at the end of the day. And so this I problem is passed down from Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve decided to follow after another master. They were trying to take hold of their own destiny, not obeying the word of God that was given to them. And so as they, as they turned, this I problem now has been passed down genetically through our DNA, through the S-I-N that we have in each of our lives. And there is no cure. There is no way to, to solve the issue outside of Jesus. He is it. He is the one and only cure. So as he poured himself into a man and then gave himself his life for us so that we could have life eternal, what Romans chapter 10 makes perfectly clear is for any that call upon the name of the Lord, they will be saved. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, it says in Romans 10, 13. It's just that simple, through faith in him. And yet as we call upon the name of the Lord and we are then born new spiritually. Thankfully, Jesus tried to explain this to Nicodemus in John 3. As we are born for the first time in the Spirit, we were previously spiritually dead. And so we're now born again. We're, we're born. Our spirit becomes alive. What happens is, just like a baby being born, it's struggle, right? And where there's struggle, there's life. There is a fight for life from the very minute we're born, and the same is true for us spiritually. As we're born into the Spirit, there is this struggle. And where does the struggle begin? It's this tension that's between the flesh and the Spirit. The Spirit wants to be in control, spirit, soul, and body. But how do we often view ourselves? We're body, soul, and spirit. It's the reverse order of things. And so as we're born now, new and afresh, there's this tension that exists. And what Paul said in verse 3 2 Corinthians, we looked at last time, is that for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. 
There is now a spiritual battle that takes place that is fighting over us. And so we have this this tension that exists. And and Paul, as he was speaking there in Romans chapter 7, he was speaking about this battle that takes place. And maybe you've been in this spot before. Paul writes in verse 19, For the good that I will to do, I do not. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. So as Paul was looking at his life, he's like, I, I want to do good, and yet I do bad. But I desire to not do bad, but this is the thing that keeps taking place. I continue to have this sin struggle. He's talking about the war that goes on within. Verse 24, Paul's summation is, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Boy, have you ever looked in the mirror and thought that? <laughs> that's, that's pretty honest. We don't have to do that. I have looked in the mirror and thought that. Oh, wretched man that I am, how, how am I going to get out of this body of death? But Paul continues in verse 25. He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's the answer. So then with the mind, I, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. That's the tension. It's with my mind I desire to serve the law of God through the Spirit as my mind is being transformed. But this flesh, man, it cries out, and it only leads me if I serve the flesh to the law of sin. And so we have this tension that exists, but we have this thankfulness in our life we can have for Jesus from delivering us from the body of death. Now, what it looks like in our life, and I I laid these three out for us last week through the first uh, six verses, is that as we have these spiritual battles, how we can attack them is we can proclaim victory in our lives. Just like Joshua and the children of Israel surrounding Jericho, they proclaim victory before the walls ever tumbled. And so we have this opportunity in Christ to proclaim the victory that he has already had. He did it on the cross. And then as we go in our life and we're, we're, being, uh, we're, we're going out into the world at large, we have this opportunity to put the plow in our hands just as the Lord gave to Gideon. He said, Gideon, I want you to go uh, take a hold of the plow and start to pull down idols. And so we have this opportunity to begin to pull down the idols. And man, does it feel like plowing some days. It is just enduring and plowing. And the next day it's plowing and enduring. And Gideon's got all these big questions for God. Why God? Why all these things? And God says, put your hand to the plow. Gideon, just keep pulling down idols. And finally, lastly, we're called to pull them down completely. Because the, the issue we have often is we always want to leave that favorite little idol, that one off in a corner that we don't want to talk about, we don't want to deal with. But for the kings of Israel, this was always the stumbling stone. They did not pull down the high places. They didn't take down and completely decimate them. They instead compromised. And what James chapter 1 says is that compromise always leads to corruption. And for corruption, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it leads to death. And so for each of us, that's the issue. We compromise, and it only leads to death. And many times we've got all these dead things in our life because of a compromise that we allow. So what then can we do? We're in this battle. How do we fight the battle? What's the playing field that we fight the battle on? The playing field actually occurs in the realm of prayer. We're called to pray. And oftentimes, this is a last resort, but what Jesus says in Matthew 26, this is a spot that I took us to last week, as Jesus is there in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is praying in the Garden. Actually, his prayer, it's pretty heartfelt. He says, Father, if there's any way for this cup to pass, but nevertheless, not 
my will be done, but thy will be done. He was focused on the will of the Father. And as he wraps up that time of prayer, he then gets ready. He stands up in the garden, and here come Roman soldiers along with Judas. And Peter, he reacts the way uh, you and I typically want to handle a situation. He gets his sword out, and he just starts swinging that bad boy around. He's going to take on a whole Roman army. One Peter, hundreds of them. Here I go. But the Lord tells him in verse 52, Jesus said to him, put your sword in its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Verse 53, or do you think that I cannot now pray to my father that he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? Did you catch what the operative word was for Jesus? He says, don't think that I can't now pray to the father. And he won't send 12 legions of angels. That's 12 times 6,000, 72,000 angels ready to go, ready to fight my battle through what? Through prayer. Prayer was the key. And so this is the key. And I wonder how many times there are angels waiting on the sidelines for us to enter into the battlefield, but we do not pray. It becomes this last resort. In fact, you'll hear people all the time go, well, everything's gone to hell. We better start praying. Well, maybe everything went to hell because we didn't pray. We should have prayed in the first place. We could have avoided that spot that we're in. But we so often treat it like the Hail Mary, the end of the football game. Let's throw a prayer up and see what happens. And what God wants us to do is actually lead in prayer. He wants us to begin in prayer and be in prayer in the middle and be in prayer at the end. He, he desires this relationship with us because the battle isn't fought with clenched fists ready to, to fight and punch Satan's lights out, the battle is actually fought on our knees with open hands. If you read through Exodus chapter 17 in the first battle that Moses and the children of Israel are in, pay attention to how Moses fought the battle. His arms were up and his hands were open in an act of surrender, but the surrender was to the will of God. And as he had his arms lifted in worship and surrender, they won. When he dropped his arms, they lost. And so the encouragement here for us is to have our arms lifted, our hands lifted high and say, Lord, you're going to have to deal with this. Send angels on my behalf. Send them in because I can't fight this battle anymore. And so we have this ability to do this. And this is what Paul was trying to communicate. So all that for the longest introduction into chapter 10, verse 7. The question for the Corinthians here is, on what authority are you speaking, Paul? On whose authority are you actually uh, coming to us under? And what Paul begins with in verse 7, he says, do you look at things according to the outward appearance? You see, for the Corinthians, they looked at the outward appearance, and this is how they made all of their judgments. They would only look upon the outward. And what we find is, through church history, uh, Paul's outward appearance has been described as a, a short little guy, uh, with a bald head and uh, stooped over shoulders and bow legs and a big old hook nose, and he was one ugly dude. That's what we find out. And so as he's planted the church, and then better-looking guys have come in after the Apostle Paul, maybe even better speakers, and they're like, you know what? Uh, there's way better-looking guys we'd like to follow after than the Apostle Paul. They judged based upon Paul's appearance. And before we throw them under the bus too quickly in Corinth... Um, the Jews did the same thing, and so do we as Americans, by the way. You ever wonder why the quarterback on the football team is always the best-looking guy? Because he's always the one getting picked first on the playground. 
He's the one getting all the opportunities. The tall, good-looking guy is the one that gets selected. And so this is true for us, and it was true for the nation of Israel. When God gave them the ability to pick a king because they cried out to him over and over again, give us a king so we can be like everybody else, the Lord said, okay, you pick. And just like on the playground, they looked across, and they saw the tall, good-looking guy, Saul, one of the Benjamites, and said, that's the one. He's the guy. Never mind that when they picked him, he ran away like a scared little girl, didn't want to take the job. Oh, no, get him back out here. Let's prop him up and make him king. And so that's precisely what they did, and they got exactly what they bargained for. Saul didn't have any character. He was not a man that would actually obey the word of God. And so when the Lord decided to remove him as king, he said, now this time I'm going to pick. I want you to go, Samuel, to the house of Jesse. I want you to go to Bethlehem, and I want you to go to his house. And as Samuel arrived there, Jesse began to parade his sons out before him. And in verse 6 of 1 Samuel 16, so it was when they came that he looked at Eliab, the oldest son, and said, surely this is the Lord's anointed before him. I mean, Samuel looked at this guy, man, he was good looking. He's like, this must be the dude. I found him right off. And yet, verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord wasn't concerned at all about Eliab's outward appearance. His heart wasn't right for the job. And son after son of Jesse was brought before Samuel. And time after time, God said, not it, not it, not it, until finally he ran out of sons. <laughs> and Samuel's like, surely you got somebody else. Well, we got the 15-year-old scrappy little scrawny kid out in the field with the, with the sheep. And they bring in none other than King David, who at that point was anointed king of all of Israel. Why? Because he was the strongest and the biggest and the fastest? Absolutely not. The Lord could care less about his physical stature. He was only concerned about the heart, the same thing he's concerned with in our lives. So many times we want to disqualify ourselves from having any kind of voice or any kind of ministry because we will say, but I don't have all of the competencies. I don't know enough of the word. I'm not a good enough speaker. I don't have any of these giftings. And what God says is, I don't care a lick about that. I care about your character. God cares far more about our character than he ever does our competency. And so back to 2 Corinthians, Paul says, do you look at outward appearance? The answer is yes, they do. If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ, let him again consider this in himself that just as he is Christ, even so we are Christ. And so not only did they judge by outward appearance, they also forgot to ask the right question of the people that would come into Corinth. You see, the thing is, God's okay with us asking him questions. He won't always answer them directly, but he's fine with us throwing questions out there to the Lord. But the, what Paul's trying to bring to mind to these Corinthians is, you didn't ask the most important question. Yes, they're fantastic speakers. Yes, they're tall, dark, and handsome. They look so good up there speaking to you about the Lord. You're only concerned with the outer appearance. You forgot to ask this. Is he of Christ? The only thing that actually mattered. Is he of Christ? Does he have Jesus living in him? 
Is he actually giving you Jesus? Is, is that what they're, they're serving you? And so for many times we have uh, speakers that come up or false prophets that come up and we, we get so enamored with the way they conduct themselves and yet we forget to ask, is he of Christ? Well, how then are we to know? How are we to know if somebody's of Christ? I'm so glad you guys asked. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount. What the Lord says in Matthew 7, he actually begins this chapter by saying one of the uh, most improperly quoted verses in all the New Testament, judge not lest ye be judged. But then he goes on to say in verse 17, he says, even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. By their fruits is actually how we were called to judge. And I do want to make it clear that as we're called to maybe not be judges, we are most certainly called to be fruit inspectors. We are called to inspect fruit. And the first fruit we're called to inspect is in our lives. How, how does the fruit look in my own life? And then as I examine that, how then does the fruit look beyond that? And what is the fruit of the Spirit but love? Love's the fruit of the Spirit. It tastes like joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control, but it's love. This is what it should look like. And so we're called to judge fruit. Is it good? Is it bad? Are they actually loving? This is what Paul's trying to get at. Now, all this derived at chapter uh, 10, verse 8. For even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for edification, and not for your destruction, I shall not be ashamed, lest I seem to terrify you by letters. For, verse 10, his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when we were absent, such we will also be indeed when we are present. Paul begins this section by saying, look, I'm not bragging about the authority that God's given me. You've questioned my authority. I'm not going to brag about my authority, but I want you to understand that the authority I do have, it comes from God. It's important to know where the source is. Because if you've got the wrong source, the whole message is going to be a disaster. So the, the message, the authority that Paul had came from God. And as he's been given this authority uh, from God, here's what the purpose of the authority is. It's for edification and not for destruction. The purpose of God giving us authority in Him is so that we can edify others, so that we can be edified and we can turn around and edify others. When Jesus said He was going to give the power of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 1, He says, I'm going to give you power so that you can become witnesses to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. I'm giving you power for a specific purpose. This is the reason behind it. Now for Jesus, as He was traveling with His disciples through Samaria, in uh, Luke chapter 9, they were going through the area of Israel known as Samaria that any good and decent Jewish person in that day would completely avoid. They so despised and hated the Samaritans, they would walk two to three days out of their way around Samaria, around the Jordan, just to get to Jerusalem to avoid going through Samaritans. They believed they were less than, 
half-breed, they called them Samaritan dogs. Now, the Samaritans didn't like them any better. They hated one another. So there's this massive cultural divide that happens there in Samaria. And what Jesus decided to do was walk right down through the middle of it. We're not going to avoid it. We're going to address this thing up front. Now, you can imagine as they're walking through Samaria, how the Jews were treated. Uh, his disciples, who were all of Jewish descent, they were picked on. They were made fun of. They got rocks thrown at them. They, they were not welcomed whatsoever. And so as they're passing through Samaria, James and John approach Jesus in Luke chapter 9, verse 54. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said to the Lord, Lord, do you want us to command fire down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? So they've been mistreated, and their great idea was, hey, Lord, you've given us authority. How about we, uh, I don't know, call down fire from heaven, and we consume them like Elijah did. Wouldn't that be a great plan? That'll take care of them. And the Lord said, he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. <laughs> they were so ready to see people burned up. But what Jesus said is, I didn't come for that at all. You've completely mistaken my authority. The most famous verse probably in the New Testament is John 3.16. You guys learned it in Sunday school, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. But we often don't read the next verse. Verse 17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. That Jesus' purpose, His very name, Yeshua in Hebrew means Jehovah is salvation. He was sent to save. He showed up to save, not to destroy. He had all authority. All authority on heaven and earth was given to him, and what he chose to do with it was bring about salvation, edification, not destruction. All that to say is Paul's addressing them. He says, look, I'm, I'm really sorry in verse 9 for the scary words I wrote you, lest I write you terrifying words. This is uh, Paul using some of my favorite uh, in Scripture, and that is sanctified sarcasm. Paul's saying, I'm so sorry if my words scared you. Do I have scary words for you? I scared you by my letters, apparently you big, tough Corinthians, for this is what I've already heard you saying. His letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is contemptible. The, the word's already gotten back to me, that you think I write one way, and yet I'm a different way around you. You're, you're calling me two-faced. So first of all, really sorry for the scary letters that frightened you, but I want you to understand, um, if you need me to not be two-faced, here's what I'm going to do. For the people that say this, verse 11, when I show up, I'm going to be to you, to your face, exactly like I was in the letters. This is Paul going what I would call, at least in my version, a little bit of Clark County on it. I am not afraid to show up and jerk a knot. I'm going to show up and be to your face the way that I was in the letters. But as Paul gives them this stern warning, it's important to understand Paul wasn't trying to defend himself. They were making fun of Paul. What Paul was trying to do was make sure the word of God was going forth, that people were able to hear from him. They could say whatever they wanted about the Apostle Paul. He wasn't concerned about that. What he was concerned with was there were people who were lost and dying and going to hell. They needed to hear about Jesus. 
This is all the more complicated it needed to be. And there were people in the church getting in the way of that. And that Paul would not stand for. In fact, on his first missionary journey in Acts chapter 13, he goes out with Barnabas and they end up on the island of Cyprus. And while they're there, they find that they've got a voice with the guy who's the governor or the proconsul of the whole region. And so they've got this powerful man that's listening to the word of God being taught to them. But verse 8, Elamus, the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. And then Saul, who is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time, and immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. And then, verse 12, the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. You see, when somebody got in the way of people coming to know Jesus, Paul was not afraid to exercise his authority. This is a crazy scene. Some guy that's acting like a wizard, <laughs> he's trying to chant all these kind of enchantments on the Apostle Paul, and he looks at him and says, you son of the devil. And and, then blindness comes upon him. And so we get excited about that story, but I want you to understand, first of all, the man was only blind for a season, and secondly, Paul's intention was for salvation. He wasn't looking to destroy. He was looking to see edification happen and salvation. And so he gives us an understanding of the authority that's been given to him and the authority that's also available to us. Now, verse 12, he says, For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. Did you guys get that? That's what I thought. In the Brock Ashley version, what I have is um, people who compare themselves against themselves only confuse themselves. That's essentially what Paul is getting at. That they, looking at themselves, they decided that they were the measure. We're the measure of what is good. Now, the issue with that is twofold. First of all, uh, when you become the measure for what is good or bad in a life, uh, you can tend to be complacent or even downright overconfident. And what I mean by that, and you guys are super holy, so you've probably never done this, but for me, the way this looks is uh, we look at the lives of other people and we go, you know, honey, we're not doing too bad. I mean, look at them over there. They are a jacked up mess. We're doing pretty good. I think we got it going on. And so as a result, you tend to become overconfident, complacent in your walk with Jesus. Now, on the flip side, we can actually become depressed by doing this because we could sit at the same table and go, man, we don't have a marriage like that. Our kids are kind of a mess. I don't think we got it going on right now. I mean, you see how, look at the book of face. Look how perfect they are. They've got it all together. And so we, we can look at this and become depressed on how awesome other people are. And what Paul's trying to get at is, you Corinthians have compared yourself against yourselves. And you've actually convinced yourselves that everything is okay. I'm okay. You're okay. We're all okay. This is what you've convinced yourselves of. But Paul's just spent two letters, and we've spent almost a whole year reading through them, where he's telling them, you're not okay. 
You're not even close to okay. You're a mess because you've used a wrong form of measurement. The correct form of measurement is Jesus. He's it. And how, what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, for those who were concerned about comparing themselves with themselves, especially in the realm of righteousness, what the Lord says in Matthew 5, uh, verse 20, He says, For I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying, if you want to be righteous or self-righteous, you have to be better than the scribes and the Pharisees. These are the most religious people any of them knew. Jesus set the bar so high that they looked at one another and said, how is that possible? How could any of us actually be made righteous? I mean, look at these religious people. They fast, they pray, they mourn, they've got the, the word actually literally. They would tie the word. They even still do to this day. They will tie boxes on their foreheads that have the word of God on the frontlets of their eyes. They, they are so religious. We can never be that righteous. It's impossible. And Jesus said, you're right. It's impossible. Matthew chapter 19, verse 26. Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. The part that they had forgotten, the piece that they had forsaken was, but with God. With God, all these things become possible. The impossible becomes possible because it's not our righteousness we're seeking. It's the righteousness of Jesus. He becomes our standard for righteousness, but here's the beautiful part. As he becomes the standard for righteousness, through his life, his death, his resurrection, and our belief in him, we actually get to assume his righteousness. We take on his righteousness. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. This is what Paul says here in the first uh, chapter of this beautiful letter. Uh, verse 16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also the Greek. That means everybody. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. They're quoting from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4 in your Old Testament. The just shall live by faith. What is the actual measure of a man or a woman? It's our faith that gets measured. It's, it's by faith that we believe. This is the beautiful part of the gospel, that as we look at our lives and go, I don't measure up, the answer is, you're right, you don't, but Jesus does. And as I believe in him who does measure up, as I look at my righteousness, it's no good. It's filthy rags. Here's the promise from Isaiah chapter 61, one of my favorite Verses in all of Isaiah, Isaiah 61, verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. The promise that He's giving us is as we stand before Him, it's not our righteousness that we're clothed in. Jesus is going to look at us on that day and go, here's a robe of righteousness. I'm going to give you my robe. And so when the Father looks at me, he sees 
the robe of righteousness from Jesus himself. His blood has provided. It's been poured forth. And the only thing I have to do is believe. I have to have faith. That's the only measure for you and I. Now, as we continue in verse 13, we, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us, a sphere which especially includes you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though our authority did not extend to you, for it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ, not boasting of things beyond measure, that is, in other men's labors, but having hope that your faith is increased. And we shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment. What Paul's saying concerning his authority is that his authority was limited to the sphere or the running lane that God had given him. That his authority was for a given time, for a given people, inside a given authority. And in the Corinthians, by the way, he's noted, uh, you fall in that. You know how he knew that? Because he planted the church. God had given him authority in that spot, and the church showed up and continued to meet. And so he had authority in their lives that he could speak. Not necessarily outside of that, but in there, he most certainly had it within their running lane. Now, he uses this idea, this concept of running lanes because for those Greeks there in Corinth, they loved the Olympic-style games. In fact, they had the second largest of these type of games in the ancient world called the Isthmian Games. And so when he brought about this idea of running a race, they would all understand that when you ran a race, you were to stay in your lane. The boys yesterday had a, a swim meet in Mattoon, and, and I asked them, hey, what would happen if you decided not to swim in your lane, but to just veer over and swim in somebody else's lane? Like, oh, Dad, that's dumb. We'd be disqualified right off the bat. Like, yeah, yeah, DQ'd. And yet for us, so many times, we, we have this tendency to look to somebody else's lane and wonder why we're not swimming or running over there. Why, why haven't I been given this lane or that lane? But God said, you'll have authority in your lane. You'll have a voice in your lane. There are people that are around you in your life daily. That is your lane. It might be family. It might be coworkers. It might be friends. It might be any kind of relationship. That is the sphere that he's given to you to have authority in for this time. And the good news is you're not responsible for what happens outside your lane, but you are responsible for what happens in your lane, for the people you come into contact with. And what Paul's saying is his authority would actually extend as they were faithful in their lane. So as they led more people to Christ being faithful in the lane they were in, then Paul's authority was actually going to expand, but all this was the authority of God working in and through him. So for each of us, we have been given a voice for a time, for a group of people. It was never made more clear to me what it looked like to have a voice for a specific group than in 2017, we got the chance to go to Israel with a group from Parkland Chapel. And as we were from the little town of Farmington, Missouri, right in the middle of the country, we traveled there with two other churches. It was a, a West Coast church from Santee, California, and, and an East Coast 
church from New Jersey, and we all kind of came together. There were seven or eight of us from Parkland and about 40 in total from the other churches. And so we were, we were the minority, to say the least. But as we would gather there together at dinner, uh, it was obvious to people from the Midwest because we were louder than everybody else. We laughed more. We made fun of ourselves. We, we jested each other. And the people from the East and West Coast looked at us like, you have lost your ever-loving mind. But as they looked at us, I realized I don't have a voice with them. But here's the thing. It doesn't make us better or worse than one another because I wouldn't have a voice with them and they wouldn't have a voice with our people either. We were given a voice for a specific group of people. So as we gather here in this sphere right now, it is a particular running lane. We won't be for everybody, but we'll be for somebodies. And for the somebodies that we're here for, we have the opportunity to have a voice in this, in this spot that we're in, in this sphere that will carry out to your sphere and the sphere beyond that. And this is the way the gospel grows in the church. Now, all this to say, it should actually be a tremendous comfort to you that that's the case. Because so many times we have this question like, Lord, where would you call me? Lord, where would you send me? There's got to be some place for me to go, Lord. And we cry out to Him. And I feel like He, he tells us very clearly in His Word, I got you there. You're, you're in the spot I want you to be in. Now be faithful in that spot. And as you're faithful in that spot, He will give you the next spot, and the next spot, and the next spot to just simply be faithful in the place He's positioned you. Finally, verse 17 but he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. If you seek approval, it's not from man. It's from the Lord. And there were some people in the church in Corinth, they gloried in the Apostle Paul. They would brag about, hey, Paul baptized me. I knew Paul. He is awesome. He's our preacher. He's our pastor. And there were others that couldn't stand Paul. They wanted him out. We are done with him. And what Paul's saying is, you're both actually incorrect. You shouldn't glory in me to the good or the bad. The only glory that should be had is in the Lord. If, if you're going to glory, glory in him and him alone. And he quotes here from Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23, where it reads, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord exercising loving kindness and judgment and righteousness in the earth. And so if you're going to glory, what the Lord says is don't glory in any of these things. But so often we, we tend to try to glory in things like, like might, power, right? But if you look around the world, what happens with power it, it always goes away. I mean, look, look throughout the history books. Every great power that was so very powerful, what happened? They all got overpowered. They all eventually went away. Every great job title, every great thing that people could say about us at some point in time, that might, that power, it goes away. Don't glory in that is what God tells Jeremiah. Secondly, he says, for the one who glories in wisdom, at some point, wisdom fades even for those who are the most wise. At some spot in our lives, we're not quite as sharp as what we used to be. 
As much as we'd like to pretend and promote ourselves and go, yeah, but we're so wise and we've got this great intellect, at some point it begins to fade. And for those who've dealt with loved ones, who've had dementia and struggle in that realm, you've seen that firsthand. So much glory they had at one point, and yet the light goes dim and things fade. Lastly, for those who glory in wealth, Andrew Carnegie was famous for saying this quote, um, three generations from shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves. And his idea was uh, for the one who created wealth in a family, uh, he did it by his shirt sleeves, by working hard, rolling them up, and getting after it, and he built a nice nest egg. And then as he left it to the next generation, uh, what happened is they typically squander it. And then the generation after that squanders it again. And so it's, it's fairly depressing, but they go from shirt sleeves back to shirt sleeves in three generations. And so while the quote seems depressing, what you find is the st- statistics, if I could get it out, say that for first-generation wealth, typically 70% of that is exhausted through the end of the second generation. And by the time the third generation rolls around, 90% of the wealth that was accumulated by generation one has been squandered by generation three. That's statistics. It's exactly what God says. You, you want to glory in the wealth, it's going to fade away. And you might think that this quote was uh, only from Andrew Carnegie, and this is an American thing. I wanted to read this to you. He actually stole the quote from an old English proverb that says, there is none but three generations between a clog and a clog. For the Italians, they have a saying that says, from stalls to stars to stalls. The Spanish say, who doesn't have it, does it. Who has it, misuses it. The Chinese have a proverb that says, from peasant shoes to peasant shoes. My point is, it's cross-cultural. This is not a, an American problem. This is a, a world problem. This goes back to being an, an eye problem. When we make an idol out of wealth, it always fades for the one who glories in that. I'll put that down. All that to say, here's Paul's encouragement. If you're going to glory, glory in him. What does glorying in the Lord look like? It looks like getting up in the morning and just spending time with him. Spending time in my word. Spending time in prayer. Spending time journaling the things that he's given me and putting on my heart. If we're going to have wisdom, let's have wisdom in that. For the man or woman who does that, they will pass on eternal legacy that goes on from generation to generation. It doesn't fade like all these other things that ebb and they flow. And so my prayer for us is, is just simply that. That we'll be a people that are wise in the knowledge of him and we grow rich in his love. So Father, we thank you and we praise you for Paul's heart for the Corinthians that really says so much more about your heart for us. I thank you, Lord, that this word that we hold in our hands, it is like any other book in that it is chapter and verse, but it is unlike any other book in that it is living and breathing and meets us right where we're at. It is for us today. I thank you, Lord, that this is not a reference manual, but a love letter about you and your character and your kindness and your mercy and your goodness. Father, as you have already poured yourself out for us, help us when we lack faith. For many of us, we can, we can cry out in faith, but like the man from 
Mark chapter 9, we can cry out to you, Lord, I believe, now help my unbelief. Lord, help us as we go from faith to faith, from we grow from glory to glory. Lord, help us to just simply believe. And when we struggle to believe, Lord, help our unbelief. Father, I pray that for us as a group, and I pray that for me individually. All this we ask in Jesus' name.